always amazed by the diversity of people, their art histories, our backgrounds, and the things that people are involved in on a regular basis. Um, Jeff, you and Kathy go where once a month? How did that church become a part of your world? Yeah, we got married. Uh, <laughs> I was I tell everybody I was homeless, and she was cooking, and it was a perfect match. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we uh, Kathy got there through a little Creek outreach. So that's how she turned that outreach. And she was there actually a couple years before I came along, and, and I and I came along. And who went with you last night? Just wanted to embarrass you a little bit, Kathy. Anyway, okay. Now, I want you to know that if I offended you today, you are to forgive me, so don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> um, as we have looked at this chapter, we've seen a similar theme that runs throughout it. The focus of Jesus' whole instruction in this chapter is our relationship with one another in the church. Chapter 1 opens up with the disciples asking, who is the greatest? Um, and Jesus devoted his answers to the fact, to that relationship among one another. So in verses 1 through 6, he says, the greatest of you is going to be the one who serves one another. Who is the, humility is the define, the definition of greatness. Um, and so he makes sure that people understand that. And it's a willingness. That humility is a willingness to serve others. A willingness to take a look at what are the needs of others. To take a look at the, around the people, uh, around to the people that are around you and say, what do they need? Not what do they want, but what do they need? And is there any way that I could help meet that need? Um, and then in verses 7 through 11, he goes on and says, if you're really going to be great in my kingdom... You not only need to meet their needs, but you need to look out for one another. You need to be protective of one another. That that sort of true greatness in the kingdom. Um, you, you want to make sure that you don't do anything that would cause your brother or your sister to stumble. So there may be things that you feel are perfectly okay to do, but 
it may cause someone else to stumble. So instead of doing it, you just say, you know what? I don't need to do this. I can go ahead and just protect um, the faith of my brothers and sisters. In other words, you need to think about the needs of the whole family, not just yourself. And then in verses 12 through 14, he reminds us that God is like a shepherd. He is a, our God, our Father, is like a shepherd, and that he cares about each and every one of us. And that he would leave the 99 to go find the one. Um, and that that's the kind of heart that the disciples are supposed to have. That believers are supposed to have a heart that says, it grieves us if one is lost. It grieves us if one wanders away. Um, and then in verse 14, which I think is key, it just basically says, God does not delight in anyone, in anyone being lost. You know, that's, and so that's the heart that we're supposed to have, which sets us up perfectly for the discussion that we see in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Um, and a lot of times these verses are taken as just a separate piece and not in context with the first part of the chapter or the next part. But here in the middle of these, this chapter, talking about relationships, he goes on and says, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now verses 18 through 20 are really focusing on what is going on in 15, 16, and 17. Um, but I think it's interesting that here that Jesus is talking about or chooses to use the term brother. Because when you think of somebody who has sinned against you, somebody who has harmed you, somebody who's done something to you, how often do you think of them as brother? You know, usually our first response when somebody does something to us is we start thinking enemy. We think of somebody who we're not real happy with. And so instead of thinking them as part of our family, we think almost the opposite. Somebody who is out to hurt us. And Jesus says, I specifically want to look at those who are part of the church, who profess my name, who claim to be my, my children, who have offended you. And I want you to look at them as brothers who ultimately can't be separated from you. No matter how they behave, they're still your family. Um... You know, they may embarrass you. You may wish they weren't your family. You, you know, you'd say, okay, this is the crazy uncle coming from out of town. I mean, it could be all those types of things. But it's still 
your family. And Jesus is the same way spiritually as saying, if you look at these professing believers who have sinned against you, I want you to do everything you can to keep family unity in the body. Okay? Now, why is that? What are the two greatest commands that God gives us, or Jesus gives us, throughout the New Testament? What are they? Love, love each other. So everything that he's saying here is based on those two commands. If I'm going to love God, if I do love God, then the second is like the same. I have to love others. So he's saying that when a professing Christian offends you, the first thing you have to do is think about that person's spiritual well-being. Okay? Now, how often is that our first response? If somebody offends me, a, a Christian brother offends me, how often is my first response, you know, to think about their spiritual well-being? It's a difficult pill to follow, which is why I think in verse 21, which we will get to next week, Peter's response is, okay, that's fine, Jesus. Okay, I get it. Now, how often do I have to do this? You know, that's his first question. Okay, if that's what you want me to do, I've, I've put it down on my list of things to do, but if I've, how many times? You know, so I can just keep a tally, because after I do it ten times, I'm done. I mean, i got to do it more than ten times? Okay, I'll do it twenty times. I'm done. And pretty much he says, no, Peter, you're never done. Your love for your family your brothers and sisters in Christ is such that you're never done doing what is necessary to restore somebody who has hurt you. So what is Jesus teaching? First of all, Jesus' words in verse 15 tell us that if you're sitting in this room and you know other Christians, you might recognize that you're going to get hurt by them. Okay? In the course of my years of ministry, that has one, one, one of the things that has always surprised me is that the surprise of other Christians to be surprised when somebody hurts them. How could they have done that? How could they have hurt me? Why? They, they just don't get it. And yet Jesus is saying by this, very, by this statement, you're going to get hurt. People are going to hurt you. They're going to sin against you. I've heard some Christians get hurt by somebody in a church and they say, this is all a charade. It's all a farce. Why do I even go to church? I think I'm just going to stay home from now on. Or I'm going to go someplace else. I'm going to find something else to fill my time on Sunday morning because those Christians, you know, they're just, they're just out to hurt you. Um, and Jesus is warning us in this very instruction that don't be surprised, don't be, sh don't be shocked, that faith does not lift us above the possibility of sin and people sinning against us. That's part of what's happening. So it's so important that we're not surprised or fatally discouraged 
when Christians fail us in their dealings with us and that we need to just be ready for it. Um, he told us that it would happen. In fact, he spends a lot of time, not only here, but throughout the scripture, of how to deal with people who have sinned against you or failed you. So it's just part of what's going on. So it's clear that Jesus expects this to happen in our lives. Now, the important thing is that just because it's going to happen, it doesn't disprove Christianity. It doesn't disprove the reality of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't disprove the claims of Christ in a person's life. Or the power of the gospel, or the power of the Holy Spirit to transform a person's life. What I, what I struggle with, and maybe I shouldn't say struggle with, is that as we're trying to reach non-believers, as we're trying to evangelize, all the things that take place in the church and all the things that take place in people's lives that just become part of what's out there, the level of trust that people would have for the church is just at an all-time low. I'm not sure that the level of trust that people have for the church is much better than the level of trust they have for the United States Congress. Um, and so when people are trying to witness to somebody else, they do that. Because people are surprised when people fail. Instead of saying, no, you know what? Jesus said this was going to happen. But that doesn't disclaim who Jesus is, who, what his promises are, what the Holy Spirit can do, and what his word promises. So the first lesson that we can draw from this message is that we, passage is we need to expect to be hurt from time to time. Jesus goes on to say, in essence, sins are going to happen, and, and this is the way I want you to think. When somebody hurts you, I want you to think about the needs of the one who has just sinned against you. Now, can you imagine that instruction? Wait a second, you, you just told me that if somebody hurts me, you want me not to worry about that, but I'm supposed to say, oh, I wonder what's going on in their life that I need to address. Ah, come on, you got to give me better than that, Jesus. Um, yeah, but that's what he's saying. And that's because in the whole chapter here, Jesus is saying, how do we relate to one another? We also learn in this passage um, that Jesus is clearly talking about private sins. Okay? Because he says, when we are sinned in this manner, go privately to that person. Okay? So if somebody has done something to you, it's private. And so you go to them in private. Now in other passages, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's public sense. Everybody knew what was going on, and so everybody was going to be a part of what was going to, how it was addressed. But here it said, Somebody has offended you, and you're to go to them personally. Now see, that's not natural. 
If somebody offends you, what do we normally do? Stay away. Or we tell somebody. But it's not the person that offended us that we tell. We tell somebody else because we've been hurt and we don't have the ability, the courage, or the wherewithal, or the power of the Spirit moving in us to say, hey, wait a second, Jeff, you hurt me. Instead, I say to Vince, did you, you know what Jeff did to me? And now I've got Jeff, uh, Vince to carry up an offense for me against Jeff. And so, and the next thing we do, we put it on our prayer list. Well, pray for so-and-so, unspoken, why? But we know, you know, we know why I got to pray for Jeff. And then we get into our small group, our, our, you know, our prayer group, and we say, well, let me tell you what I need prayer for. Not to let me tell you who needs prayer. Jeff needs prayer because of what he did to me. And so we never go to the person. Now, you want to know how marriages fail? Same way. Husband and wife are together. Wife does something. Husband doesn't confront it because of fear. And so, but then he goes and tells somebody else. You know what my wife did? And that person says, yours too? And pretty soon there's just start to, there becomes these, this tension. And wives do the same thing. Gwen and I learned a long time ago that we just say it all in public and we're both there when it, we say, you know what Gwen did and everybody knows and she says the same thing to me. That way there's no secret telling of people. Um, but that, it really, it just happens in all relationships and we destroy relationships when we do that. We destroy relationships. Um, so don't shame the Christian. Go privately to privately to them. Uh, now, the reason why we do that, go privately, or not shame them, when the offense has been, been in private and we publicly expose it, it naturally brings up the person's defenses. And what, is, what are the defenses? Instead of me saying to Jeff, Jeff, you did this and that hurt me, I tell Vince, I tell others, now what does Jeff do? Okay, not what Jeff do. What would you do? <laughs> Same thing. And instead of acknowledging the thing that he did, he looks at me and says, but look at what you did. You gossiped about me. You, never, you, you shamed me. You did all of these things. So there's never a restoration. There's never even acknowledgement of the other person's behavior. Instead, they now can defend and deflect and deny. Now, how often does that take place in our society in the political arena? Exactly. But it's no different in the church arena. We can be guilty of doing the exact same thing, of just not going to a person. So when the offense has been in private, we publicly expose it, and it naturally brings up that person's defenses. 
to think about what not what they have done, but what you have done to, done to them. So they can't focus upon their own sins because now they are focused on trying to cover that sin. And Jesus is saying, go privately. Go privately. And he's asking you to help them in every way possible to focus on the real matter and not get caught up in deflecting and defending. Jesus has given us the best relationship, spiritual counsel you could possibly have. When you have an offense against somebody, you go to them. The third thing we learn is that, when we, that we are to go to them and show them where and how we've been offended. This is what you've done. This is how I've been offended. Again, that's an unnatural thing to do. Because most people avoid conflict. And so to go to somebody and say, you know, when you did this, this hurt me. You, you sinned against me in this way, whatever it may be. But instead, a lot of times we just say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. That, you know, I'm okay. You know, I can just bury it. It won't happen. And we think that we're burying it, but eventually it comes out elsewhere. And a lot of times it will come out as we are talking to other people about it. And we talk about it like it's no big deal, but the fact that we even mention it continues to cast dispersion on another person. Because we even make words like, well, I know they didn't mean to do it. And I know that they would never do it on purpose. And da-da-da-da-da-da. But what does that do when you hear somebody say to you, I know they would never do it on purpose? They still did it. And if they did it there, there's a good chance they'll do it again. And again. And so it, it creates a barrier for fellowship. It creates a barrier of love. So he's telling us, don't pretend it's okay. Don't pretend that it doesn't bother you. If it's an offense and it bothers you, just go to the person and say, hey, this is what happened. And get it resolved. Um, and Jesus is saying that's the way he wants us to relate to one another in community. And for the purpose of spiritual health of the family. Again, when you go to your brother, you need to understand that Jesus is not saying, go in order to get your grievance off your chest, or go to them so that you can dump on them, or that you can get some closure on your anger. You're doing it for what reason? The benefit of the other person. You're doing it for the benefit of the other person. So sometimes I just have to make sure that my heart's right. Am I going this because I really care about this other person? That I want restoration? That I want healing? Or am I doing it to dump on them, to get a grievance out, or to get rid of my anger? Because if you do it for those reasons, after you do it, it's not going to be any different. It'll be okay for a little bit of time, but then you're still going to have the anger. Because something about revenge is that revenge is never enough. You know, you say, you know, I want to get revenge because they've hurt me, and I did this. And they seemed okay, and I'm still not okay, so i got to make sure that they're not okay. So revenge is never enough. So Jesus has given us some amazing advice on how to deal with people. 
I want you to go to your brother out of concern for his spiritual well-being. Uh, he's not telling us as a way of getting satisfaction for a personal grievance, but as speaking of helping another person. You see, the resolution of the conflict is not the main point here. The spiritual well-being of another person is the main point. Um, I know it's hard. And that's why Peter asked the question, Really, Jesus? How often do I do that? And when is it going to be about me? When, when, can, when am I able to acknowledge that this person hurt me and they, there's, there's got to be some repentance upon their part before I can just be concerned about them? And he's saying, your primary concern has been a sin against you, and it's not to be. It's to be concerned for the spiritual well-being of the one who did it. Because the reality is, no matter what any person does to me, it doesn't affect me for eternity. It doesn't affect me for eternity. I may get hurt. My feelings could get hurt. I could be physically hurt. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could happen. But it doesn't affect me for eternity. And go back to verse 14. What does verse 14 say in Matthew 18? And you've got your Bible open. What does verse 14 say? So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any one of these little ones should So what happens to me is not going to affect my eternity. It may affect theirs. So if I'm supposed to be concerned about somebody's eternity, do I take it personally or do I say what's going on and how that this person needs to be healing? Okay. Now, the fourth thing we learn is that if the brother does not see his faults, then we are to take that to a witness, to one or two witnesses, and speak to our brother that the case may be confirmed. Now, it's important to hear in the Old Testament, you would take it to two people, and they would, they would be a part of the judging. They would judge it. Here, they're not judging. You're just getting the facts straight. So, I go to Jeff, and I say, Jeff, you did this to me. And he goes, I don't think I did. And I go, I think you did. And he goes, oh, I don't think I've done anything wrong. And so, I go, okay. Well, let's bring in Vince and Phil and have them sit in and we'll get the facts right. And then after I confront Jeff, Vince and Phil look at me and say, Andy, you made a mountain out of a molehill. You may have read things wrong because Jeff never really did what you said he did. Okay. And I've had that happen to me. Uh, or they could say to Jeff, yeah, these are the facts, and it looks like, you know, it's true that this is what's happened. And then Jeff has a choice. They just say, okay, I've heard the witness. I need to let go of that. I need to acknowledge it. I need to ask for forgiveness. And then move on. Just move on. Um, and again, that's looking out for one another. It's taking that point. Um, so they're just here to confirm the facts. And again, 
Jesus wants us to be very careful before we get to this point. Um, so that's why there's that level of accountability, is because he wants us to be careful in that respect. Um, now, if they go to Jeff, and Jeff says, you guys are crazy, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, it doesn't matter, then it goes before the church. And the church says, you know, there's a behavior that's unrepentant of, that there's no recognition of it. And so the church says, we're going to treat you like a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay? Now, how does that sound? Sounds harsh. Okay? But it doesn't, it's not meant to be that way. It's not meant to be a statement of hate. It's not, it's not, we hate this person. It's a matter of you're doing something that is harmful to the body of believers. You're doing something that's harmful to yourself. You're doing something that is alienating you from a bright relationship with Jesus Christ. And because of that, we're going to treat you like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, what did Jesus do with the tax collectors and the Gentiles? He died for them. He witnessed to them. So a person who does that now is a person that we are evangelizing, that we are praying for, that we are caring for. Because for whatever reason, they may have been in the church, now they are outside of that relationship, and so there's something that's going on in their life that the relationship between their Savior and them has been broken, and so our responsibility is to say, okay, how do we restore it? How do we help them to restore it? And the way to restore it is to say, you know what? This behavior has gotten so bad that you can no longer be a part of the fellowship because you're hurting yourself, you're hurting everyone else. And for the purity of the church, for the purity of the family, you just need to be separated. But trust us when you say, I love you. Anybody have a child that they've ever had to kick out of their house? You don't have to raise your hands. How <laughs> I many have had a child that wanted to kick? No. <laughs> but did you do it because you hated them? No. In the process of helping someone grow up, sometimes we have to do things that make them confront who they are, what they're doing, so that they can say, no, it's not my will. I need Christ to change me. So it's even when the prodigal son, the prodigal father said, yeah, go ahead and go. So that the son got to the point of saying, no, I need to be back in fellowship with my father. I need to be back in fellowship with my family. And so that, that's the whole purpose of all of this, is to get a person back um, into the right relationship. This whole chapter is about mutual accountability. The whole chapter is about thinking as part of a family of faith, about seeking the interest of one another. So believers are supposed to look out for the spiritual interest of their brothers and sisters, even when we have been offended. At the same time, there's nothing more difficult than to be forgiving for sin 
and at the same time to confront the person in their sin. I can forgive, but I also have to confront. And how do we do that? Um, only through Christ. Only through Christ. And that's where 18 and 19 and 20 come in, um, which we're not going to get to, which I said we were going to get to, so I need to ask your forgiveness for lying to you. Um, but I do want to focus on something as we close. As, and you see this in these verses, conflict is just going to be a part of what we, where we are. Praying together, praying for the body of believers, praying for understanding, praying for wisdom, praying for strength to handle conflict is really important to make sure that we do it in the right way. Um, but again, facing conflict is squarely one of the hardest things that we ever do. It's hard in marriages. When there's a conflict, to honestly be able to confront it and when somebody does something, to be able to say, you know what? This hurt me. Instead, we will bury it. And when we bury it, it eventually comes out over something that had, we had not, nothing to do with it. But it immediately creates a barrier in the relationship. It's the same when we don't do it with fellow believers. It immediately creates a barrier. It's our relationship with Christ. It immediately creates a barrier. Um, so we can't just pretend that conflict doesn't happen. We just need to acknowledge it and do the simple steps that Jesus gives us so that the body is healthier, that there's a spiritual health, and that there's a peace within the body. For me to ignore the wrong that I have done, or for me to ignore that somebody may have wronged me and not to go to them isn't helping them spiritually and it's not helping me spiritually. But it's also, we need to recognize that this isn't a, a, a verse on church discipline. It's, on, it's a verse on human restoration, reconciliation, reconciliation and spiritual health and well-being um, is it hard absolutely because the easiest thing to do if I'm sitting at Dan's table this week and he says something that offends me is to go over and sit next to Alta next week I'll just change tables or I'll change churches or to get to the point I'll change spouses or I'll change families and that's what happens when people just don't deal with the issues that are in our life. Our family is our family, a spiritual family, and God says, I love all of you. Now, the second greatest command is, and you must do the same for each other. Father, I just praise you and thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to come together. And Lord, I ask that you continue to bless each and every one of us. That when we felt slighted, or when we have been slighted, or when we have felt somebody has sinned against us, or they have sinned against us, that we have the freedom to go to a person 
in private out of concern for them and say, this is what's happened. So that we can be restored into a healthy, right relationship with you and with one another. Father, I just thank you and praise you. I ask for your blessing upon each and every person here that we can go forth to be a blessing to others. It's my prayer in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.